doing another episode in the year of polygamy, a series where we follow the practice and principle of Mormon polygamy and all the doctrine and theology behind it. And today we are focusing on one of the wives of Joseph Smith. If you're just joining us, I'd recommend you start with episode one with Fanny Alger. But today we're starting with a very famous woman, a woman that sort of marked Joseph Smith because she has a lot of history and her name is Emily Dow Partridge. And uh, when I when I have a lot of narrative to read, I have a reader come and read for us. So I'm having Stephanie Newton read for Emily today. So let's get into Emily's life. She's one of my favorite women in this, this series, and it's going to be a long episode. But if you have time, go read through her journals. Todd Compton has done a lot of work on her journals. I can, I'm going to put some links in the podcast. But Emily, for luckily for us, was an obsessive journal writer, so we have a lot of the history in her own words. So I'm going to go ahead and let her introduce herself. I was born on the 28th of February, 1824, in Painesville, Geauga County, Ohio. I was the third daughter of Edward and Lydia Clisby Partridge. My parents emigrated from Massachusetts to Ohio, where they became acquainted and married. My father was doing a thriving business as a hatter. He had accumulated considerable property and had provided a very pleasant and comfortable home for his family. I was quite young when I left Ohio, but I will try to tell you some things that I remember about my, about the home of my earliest childhood. I remember a frame house with one large room and two bedrooms in the first floor. Opening from mother's bedroom were two closets, one large and one small. The large one was fitted up with shelves and was used for a kind of a storeroom. The half story above consisted of one large and one small bedroom and a closed closet. On the landing at the top of the stairs were large bins for storing flour, meal, and other things. The front door opened into an entry or a small hall. The stair went up from this small hall, and the kitchen was in the basement. Opening from the kitchen was a dark vegetable cellar, which was sometimes used for shutting up the children when they needed to be punished. I remember once my sister Harriet was shut in the dark, and how sorry I was for her. For to a child, darkness is all the horrors imaginable. I do not remember ever being shut in there myself, but if I was not, it was because I was not old enough not because I did not deserve it, for I was the most mischievous of the whole flock. Not not far from the house, next to the street was Father's Hat Store, and how I used to rummage under the counter, child fashion, looking for treasures, such as bits of red and blue and green and gilt leathers, such as are used to line hats and boys' caps, and oh, how I would sometimes bump my head when I would raise up, and then how I would cry. Joining on to the back of the store was the shop where the hats were made. In the center of the room was a large iron kettle, about as large and shaped something like our bathtubs. It was fitted into a furnace. It was for coloring hats. Above the kettle was a large wheel with pegs to hang the hats on to be colored. The wheel kept turning so the hats went into the dye, and then into the air, and then into the dye and that way they were prevented from spotting. In color black, the light and air are very essential to make a good color. In this same room, there was a screen with a spout that drained into a barrel in the cellar. It smelled very much like the old-fashioned blue dye. On the corner of the place was a vacant lot, but, you know, it was all fenced in with the rest. I, I presume that my father had preserved it for some time to build a nice house. It was covered with green grass where we would spend most of our time playing with packing boxes. We would build ho- houses by placing boxes in positions to make a great many rooms. 
And as they were different sized boxes, we had many different sized rooms. And when we got tired of one kind of house, we would change it by placing the boxes in a different position. And so we would roll those boxes from one side of that piece of the ground to the other. And we always had plenty of help from the neighbor children. But with all the abundance of playground that we had, it seemed that I was not satisfied. For I would run away to the neighbors and then I'd be brought back and tied up to my mother's bedstead with a long rope that would reach to the sitting room. I used to cry a little, but soon forgot about it until I would start up again and run away when the rope would stop me and then another cry. But they would not keep me tied up always. So I'd be off again and, and once when I was out in the street, a pet lamb of one of our neighbors took after me and I really thought it would devour me if I let him overtake me. But I beat him, running, and I got home first. I only remember being chased by a big boy when I was playing in an old house across the street. Of course, he only wanted to scare me. But I didn't know that then, and I thought he certainly meant to kill me, and didn't think so for many years afterward. It is not a good plan to fool with children. For they take everything in earnest and are apt to form wrong impressions that will be lasting. My father and mother made a visit to their relatives living in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, taking their oldest and youngest children with them, leaving me and my sister Harriet with Aunt Phoebe Lee, who lived in another town not too far away. There I was again chased by a girl. She got my bonnet and ran home with it. I thought the children in Unionsville, that's where my aunt lived, were awful mean. Well, I guess you could think that I remember a good many silly things, but there is one thing I do not remember now, although my oldest sister says I was once positive that I could remember when my father and mother were married and that I was at their wedding. However, I have no recollection of that now. I remember my little playmates. There was little Edward Huntington. I called him my baby because I loved him the best of all. Of course, in children, the motherly instinct instinct predominates. And then there was Lucy Phelps and Mary Ann Seeley and the little lame girl. Her name was Dorothy Ann Payne. What a treat it was when she would let me make her take her crutches for a little while. I thought I would be almost willing to be lame myself if I could have such a nice pair of crutches. And then there was Sarah Granger, who was very small for her age. Her uncle, with whom she lived, used to call her Penny. Yes, I remember the big, unruly boy that was tied up in the shop and how sorry I was for him. He was sometimes tied up because he could run away. He was a poor, friendless boy that nobody could do anything with, and the town officers got father to take him and teach him a trade and try to make a good boy of him. His name was Harlow Castle. I sometimes wonder whatever became of him and if he was really a bad boy or whether people had no patience with the poor, friendless boy. I wonder if he was still alive and if he remembers the little black-eyed girl who would come into the shop and look at him with such pity because he was tied up. For this little girl had been tied up for running away too and knew how to feel for him. I think I must have been in a rummaging disposition, for I remember every nook and corner of the house, store, shop, and from garret to cellar, inside and out. I remember the orchard that was in another block, and the pasture land that was down the woods where we would get a wagon to gather chestnuts and butternuts. I remember we had plenty to eat and wear, and would sometimes ride in a spring wagon. And I wore the sweetest pink calico dress that ever was and little yellow shoes. Harriet had a pink dress, too, but not as pretty as mine. Well, I think my father must have been a rich man. When I look back and consider the amount of property he owned. But when Mormonism came, our home went. Whether it was sold or not, I am not quite sure. And I have never had a home since. It was sometime in the year 1830 that four elders came to Ohio. Their names were Parley P. Pratt, Oliver Cowdery, Peter Whitmer, and Ziba Peterson. My mother soon believed the gospel after she heard it and was baptized by Parley P. Pratt. 
My father was not so ready to believe at first and told told them that he thought they were imposters. When Brother Oliver Cowdery said he was thankful there was a God in heaven who knew all the hearts of men, what they said must have made considerable impression on his mind, for he sent to them after they were gone to Kirtland to purchase a book of Mormon, and then concluded to take a trip to New York and to see the prophet for himself. And this is what Brother Joseph says of him. It was in December 1830 that Elder Sidney Rigdon came to inquire of the Lord, and when he came, that man of whom I will speak hereafter, speak more fully, named Edward Partridge. He was a pattern of piety, and one of the Lord's great men, known by his steadfastness and patient endurance till the end. Brother Joseph baptized him in the Seneca River on the 11th of December in 1830. He then went to visit his relatives who reside in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, anxious they should hear the joyful tidings that so filled his heart with gladness. He thought they only had to hear to believe it. But oh, how disappointed he was when they rejected him with his joyful news. They pronounced him crazy. And one of his sisters ordered him out of her house and said she never wanted to see him again. What a bitter spirit lays hold of the unbelievers as soon as the truth is presented to them. And those that profess the most religion are most uncharitable. When my father returned to New York, his parents sent his youngest brother to accompany him. They thinking him deranged and not capable of taking care of himself. But this brother, after he arrived in Painesville, received the gospel and was baptized. His name was James Harvey Partridge, they reached home about the beginning of February 1831. From New York, home, my father traveled in company with the prophet who was moving his family to Kirtland, which had been appointed a gathering place for the saints. After his arrival home, his old and most intimate friends that had been so anxious for him to go out and find the truth of the reports of Mormonism because of his honesty and superior judgment pronounced him crazy when he declared the Book of Mormon to be true. The saints began to gather to Kirtland from all parts of the country where the gospel had been preached. And as we lived about three miles from the landing, our house made a good stopping place for the saints, and we had more or less of them stopping there from that time when we first when we remained in Ohio. The barn loft was filled with boxes of goods belonging to the saints. And how I did wish I could see what was in those boxes. But they were nailed up tight and not a crack left to peep in it. Well, you see, young as I was, I had a little bit of curiosity attributed to our sex. Some of the saints traveling through Painesville to Kirtland stopping and stopping at our house brought the measles and mothers of, and mothers' children all took them. Some, some of them were very sick when I was recovering from measles. I took the canker, and I could not eat for a very long time. I well remember the day I could eat a little custard. Oh, how good it was. Mother had company that day, and how nice the table looked with the old-fashioned blue and white china. Well, my mouth got well, but my ear was sore for years, and I can't tell you how I suffered with it both from pain and mortification of pride. When my ear did get well, it left me deaf, and I've been deaf in that ear ever since. After my parents had joined the church, they were seized with the spirit of gathering, as everyone is, as soon as they were baptized. My father bought a house in Lawton, Kirtland, but he never had the privilege of living there, as you will see. On the 4th of February, 1831, my father was called by revelation to be a bishop in Zion and was ordered to that office soon after. Sometime in June following, Brother Joseph, with several of the brethren, started for Missouri, my father being one of the number. They reached Independence, Jackson County, Missouri, about the middle of July. After located Zion in Independence, or that town being the center spot, and transacting other necessary businesses, the brethren returned home, leaving my father to remain in Zion as he had been appointed 
by revelation to labor in that place and to take up his presence and to send for his family. My mother felt that her trials had begun when my father was called to accompany the prophet to Missouri. Her children were just recovering from the measles, and her oldest child was still very sick with lung fever. It was a new thing for her to be left alone in the, in the hour of trouble, or to have any responsibility outside of her little family. But she was one of the staunch and true, and, and knew it would not do well, do to put the hand to the plow and then turn back. She could ever acknowledge the hand of the Lord in her trials, as well as her blessings. I think it was a great trial for my father to be left in Missouri. He expressed great anxiety about his family in a letter he wrote to my mother. It seemed to him a very great undertaking for mother to break up from her home and prepare for such a journey with a family of little children, without her husband to advise and make arrangements for her, for she was then young and inexperienced of such things. My father felt a great responsibility resting upon him. His own words will better express his feelings as he wrote them to my mother than any language of mine can possibly do. He said, I have a strange desire to return to Painesville this fall, but must not. You know I stand at an important station, and I am occasionally chastened. I sometimes feel as though I must fall, not to give up the cause, but to fear my station is above what I can perform to the acceptance of my Heavenly Father. I hope you and I may so conduct ourselves as at last to land our souls in the heaven of eternal rest. Pray for me that I may not fall. Farewell to the presence. My father sent that from Independence, Jackson County, Missouri, on the 5th of, 5th of August, 1831. My father placed his business in the hands of a young man by the name of Harvey Redfield. His property was sold as a great sacrifice, as much was sold at all. So much as friends pronounced him insane. They could not see what there was in religion to make a man give up all worldly consideration for it. And that is still a mystery to the world, and we cannot wonder at it when we realized how little they have in theirs to create hope or to exchange their worldly comforts, comforts for. But ours is different. It is everything. There is nothing in this life too dear to sacrifice for the hope of the future that our religion gives us. The next season, Mother with her family started for Missouri. In a company of saints under the direction of W.W. W. Phelps and A.S. Gilbert, Mother must have had a great deal to try on that journey that we as children knew nothing about. What little money she had with her to defray her expense, she was advised to put into the hands of W.W. W. Feltz, and he cheated her out of it. We went down the Ohio River to Cincinnati in a keelboat. Then we took a steamboat and went up to the Missouri River. It was on this boat that our provision chest was rifled and thrown overboard. We saw it floating downstream and knew it all at once. The lid was open and we could see that everything had been taken out but the papers that things were packed in. Once in the boat landed, one of our company, a young woman, elected Cambrian, slipped from the plank into the water, but was soon rescued again. When we were within about 100 miles of our destination. We met the ice coming down the river so thick that the boat could not proceed, and we were forced to land at a place called Arrow Rock. On the banks of the river, there was a log cabin occupied by Negroes. There were two rooms and no windows. The light was admitted through an open door, a common thing then in Negro cabins, and white folks, too, sometimes. These Negroes let Mother and Sister Morley have one room. There's about 15 in number in both families, but there was a fireplace in the room. We could have had a good fire, and so kept from freezing. We remained here for about two or three weeks, it being a very cold winter. At the end of that time, a large Kentucky wagon was procured, and the two families and their efforts were stowed in it, and we started again for independence. The weather was still very cold, so cold that we had to lay by again one day. 
That day my father and brother Morley met us. And anybody that has been in like circumstances can understand just how happy we were. I do not know what had happened to separate us from the rest of the company. Whatever suffering and privation my mother had to endure, she never murmured or complained, but rejoiced that she was counted worthy to enjoy tribulation for the gospel's sake. She felt that she had enlisted in a good cause, and she looked forward to the happy time that had been promised to the saints. Her religion compensated her for all the hardships she had to endure. Well, we again started for independence, and when we arrived at that place, we were so jammed and packed in the wagon by the load shifting that we could hardly pull ourselves out. I remember that when I went to get out of the wagon, I could not stir until some of the load was removed. My father rented a log room of Lilburn W. Boggs, the same that was afterwards governor, and took an active part in driving the saints from their homes. The next winter, houses to rent being scarce, father took a widow and four children into the room we were in, making 12 or 13 of the family to sit by one fire and to do all the work. Now, don't think for a moment that we were crowded or that we children quarreled. Perhaps we did, though I don't really remember. We stayed here until father bought a small log house of his own, one room on the first floor and one upstairs and a cellar. This house was in the corner of the temple lot, quite near, about one half a mile from the public square of Independence. About the first thing the saints did after providing shelter for the families was to start a school for the children. The first school I remember attending was in Jackson County. It was in a log cabin and taught by Miss Nancy Carl. One day, the schoolhouse was surrounded by a tribe of Indians. The door and windows were filled by Indians' faces, and every crack where the chinking had fallen out, we could see Indians' eyes. Our teacher went to the door and talked with the chief, but the scholars were as quiet as mice. We were not used to seeing Indians in those days as children are now. Well, everything was different from the home we had all left, and all seemed so strange in our new home. Plenty of Indians and Negroes and all the white folk were so different in their customs and manner and speaking. It was, I reckon, and a smart chance. Instead of carrying things in their hands, they would tote them on their heads. Large bundles and baskets, churns, piggins of milk and piggins of water, all toted on their heads. Little children were carried and toted astraddle one hip, and women were going about barefoot in warm weather, and little boys from two to ten years old were running the streets with nothing on but a shirt. Everything seemed to be after the style of the backwards men. When they washed, instead of rubbing the clothes in a washboard, they would battle them. That is, they would wet the clothes in strong soap suds and then lay them on a smooth board or log. If it was outdoors, and then beat them with a smooth stick, large at one end and small at the other. You know, that, that, that battle stick. I think it was in uh, 1832 or 1833 that the mob began to make threats and commit depredations by night by breaking windows and shooting into the homes of the saints, sometimes using abusive language. Father had a large stack of hay in his yard back of his house. One night, the mob set it on fire. It made a tremendous blaze. And this man of the mob kept annoying the saints through the summer. The mob was holding meetings and forming resolutions to drive or destroy the Mormons. And as they said in one of their preambles, peacefully if we can, forcibly if we must. I suppose they meant that if the Mormons would still hold while the mob heaped upon all them manner of abuse, they would do it peaceably. But if the Mormons resisted, they would do it by force. There was considerable excitement at times, not knowing what the mob might do. The brethren would gather knights into our house for protection. They had the room below and our families were upstairs. The men were armed and twice guns went off accidentally. The ball lodged once in the stairway and once it went through the head of the bed. The brethren would all pray together, not as one man, but as many. 
They did not understand the order of prayer then as we do now. Children had heard so much about the mob. The very word was a perfect terror to them. They would often cry out in their sleep and scream, The mob is coming! The mob is coming! In the summer of 1833, my youngest brother was born. He was about three weeks old. Mother sent with me Harriet in the spring for water. When I looked back and saw the house was surrounded by an armed mob, we remained at the spring until they had gone. Then we got our water and went up to the house. They had taken father. George Simpson was their leader up to independence. We did not know what they were going to do with him. It might be to kill him as they had threatened. He had been put in prison once or twice before. After he had been gone a while, I was standing by the window, looking the way the mob had gone, thinking of father, when I saw two men coming towards the house. One I knew. It was Albert Jackson, a young man. He was carrying a hat, coat, and vest. The other I thought was an Indian. And as they were coming right to the house, I was so frightened that I ran upstairs. When they came in, it was our dear father, who had been tarred and feathered, giving him the appearance of an Indian. I believe Charles Allen was also tarred and feathered on that same day. They had done their work well, for they had covered him with tar from head to foot, except his face and the inside of his hands. I suppose hundreds witnessed the outage, the outrage. I have heard one woman affirm that she saw a bright light encircle his head while the mob was tarring him. I very well remember the clothes he had on when he went away. They were dark blue. I remember blankets were hung up all around the fireplace to screen him, screen him while the tar was being scraped from him. I think it was the same day that the store was broken open and the goods scattered in the street. The printing office was also demolished and the press, type, and papers scattered all over the ground. Brother Phelps's family lives in, the, in a part of the same building. They were turned out of doors and their furniture broken and things scattered in the street. These are my father's own words. I was taken from my home by a mob for about half a mile to the courthouse on the public square in Independence. And then and there, surrounded by hundreds of the mob, I was stripped of my hat, coat, and vest, and dabbled with tar from head to foot, and then a quantity of feathers put upon me. And all this because I would not agree to leave the, the country. My home where I had lived two years, before tarring and feathering me, I was permitted to speak. I told them that the saints had to suffer persecution in all ages of the world, that I had done nothing which ought to offend anyone, that if they abused me, they would abuse an innocent person, that I was willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, but to leave the country I was not then willing to do. But this time, the multitude made so much noise that I could not be heard. Some were cursing and swearing, Call upon your Jesus. Others were equally noisy in trying to still the rest, that they might be unable to hear what I was saying until after I had spoken. I knew not what they intended to do with me, whether to kill me with me or what else I knew not. I bore my abuse with such resignation and meekness that it appeared to astound the multitude who permitted me to retire in silence many looking very solemn, their sympathies having been, having been touched as I thought. As for myself, I was so filled with the spirit and love of God that I had no hatred towards my persecutors or for anyone else. After my father had been tarred and feathered, a man raised a whip to finish him by thrashing him, when another man, more human, laid hold of his arm, saying he had done enough. Then they treated Charles Allen to the same. Others were brought up to be served in the same way or whipped. 
but for some cause, the mob ceased operation and adjourned until Tuesday the 23rd. Elder Gilbert, the storekeeper, agreed to close, and that may have been the reason why the work of destruction was suddenly stopped for two days. In the course of those days, wicked and outrageous and unlawful proceedings, many solemn realities of human degradations, as well as thrilling incidents, were presented to the saints. An armed and well-organized mob in the government professing to be governed by law with the lieutenant governor, the second officer in the state, calmly looking on and secretly aiding every movement, said to the saints, You now know what our Jackson boys can do, and you must leave the country. And when Bishop Partridge, who was without guides, and Elder Charles Allen walked off amid the horrid yells and the infuriated mob, coded like some unnamed, unknown biped, and one of the sisters cried aloud, While you who have done this must suffer the vengeance of God, and they, having endured persecution, can rejoice for henceforth, for them is laid up a crown eternal in heaven. Surely there was a time of awful reflection. That man, unrestrained like a brute beast, may torment the body, but God in return will punish the soul. While the destruction of the printing office and store were going on, two young girls, nieces of A.S. Gilbert, had run out of the house and hid in the corner of the fence and were watching the mob. And when they saw him bring a table piled up full of papers and set it in the middle of the street and heard them say, Here is the Book of Mormon, Revelations of those damned Mormons. They watched their opportunity when the mob returned to the house. They ran and gathered up as many of the papers as they could hold in their arms and ran to the cornfield and hid. The mob soon discovered them running with the papers and followed them, but they could not find them. The cornfields were so very large and cornstalks grew so high that they were almost like young forests. And it is an easy matter for a person to get lost in one of them. These two girls had run so far that they were lost, but after a while succeeded in finding their way out. They went to an old shanty where they found the family of Brother Phelps, trying to make themselves a little comfortable. Sister Phelps took the revelation and hid them in her bed. This is how a few of the revelations were preserved. The names of those girls were Mary E. and Carolyn Rawlings. I remember most of the circumstances that transpired at that time but was too young to remember the particulars well enough to tell them. I was about nine years old and had been baptized, in a creek not far from Independence, by John Coral. After the mob had ceased yelling and had retired, and while evening was spreading her dark mantle over the unblushing scenery as if to hide from the gaze of day, Men and women and children who had been driven or frightened from their homes by the yells and threats of the mob began to return from their hiding place in thickets and cornfields, wood and groves, and view with heavy hearts the scenery of desolation and woe. And while they mourned over fallen men, they rejoiced with joy, unspeakable, that they were accounted worthy to suffer in the glorious cause of their divine master. There lay by the printing office a heap of ruins. Elder Phelps's furniture was strewed about on the ground as common plunder. The revelations, bookworks, papers, and press in the hands of the mob as the booty of highway robbers. There was Bishop Partridge in the midst of his family, with a few of his friends endeavoring a scrape to scrape off the tar which was eating his flesh seemed to be repaired with lime paralash, acid, or some flesh-eating commodity to destroy him. And there was Charles Allen in the same awful condition, as the heart sickens at the recital. How much more at the picture. More than once, those people in this boasted land of liberty were brought into jeopardy and threatened with expulsion or death because they wished to worship God according to the revelation of heaven the constitution of their country, and the dictates of their own conscience. O liberty, now art thou fallen. Alas, clergyman, where is thy charity? In the smoke that ascended up forever and ever?
Before her 16th birthday, Emily had witnessed the horrors of mob persecution, which you had heard her just talk about in her diary. She continued to travel with the saints where the family settled in Nauvoo. The family became stricken with malaria, and this was very common at the time, very marshy area, and lots of the saints would suffer from malaria, including Emma Smith. They called it the Og, but a lot of them had malaria, and it was very common, and it would affect a lot of them for the rest of their life. Emily was very sick with malaria, and she met Brigham Young for the very first time when he came to give her a blessing. Emily was sick on and off for about a year or so, and Harriet was so ill she passed away shortly after. Emily's father, Edward, died on May 27th after being sick for a week and a half. This would have been a great loss to the family. Emily and her sisters then would have to begin to start looking for some work to support the family. And this is very common. Girls would often go out and work in the homes of other families who could take care of them. And this is what Emily and her sister did. Emily would write. The first door that opened for us was to go to President Smith's, where we were accepted. A nurse girl, for they had a young baby. That is what I delighted in, tending babies. Joseph and Emma were very kind to us. They were almost like a father and a mother, and I loved Emma and the children. Emily and her sister Eliza were happy to work in the Smith Mansion house because that was a really nice place to live. They were there with a lot of status and a lot of exciting things going on in Nauvoo at the time. And although they did not work for wages but for, quote, necessaries of life, in the home, Emily and Eliza were able to interact with the elite of society in Nauvoo. In April 1842, they were even accepted into the Nauvoo Female Relief Society. So this would have been a really great honor for them to be able to work in this household and take care of the Smith children. After a year of living there in the Smith home, Emily, who was now 18 at the time, remembers. In the spring of 1842, Joseph said to me one day, Emily, if you will not betray me, I will tell you something for your benefit. Of course I would keep his secret. He asked me if I would burn it if he would write me a letter. I began to think that it was not the proper thing for me to do, and I was about as miserable as I ever would wish to be. I went to my room and knelt down and asked my Father in Heaven to direct me. At Joseph's insistence, I could not speak to anyone on earth. I received no comfort till I went back to say I could not take a private letter from him. He asked me if, if I wished the matter ended. I said I did. He said no more to me for many months. Soon after Emily refused Joseph's letter, Elizabeth Durfee, who had married Joseph the previous year, invited Emily and Eliza to their home. Now remember, Elizabeth Durfee is considered a, quote, mother in Israel, and her job was to introduce the practice to younger wives. So she was an older wife, and she was supposed to kind of prepare them. Emily describes the following memory as being tested by Elizabeth Durfee. She would say, She introduced the subject of spiritual wives, as they called it in that day. She wondered if there was any truth in the report she heard. I thought I could tell her something that would make her open her eyes if I chose, but I did not choose to. I kept my own counsel and said nothing. So I don't know if you're picking up what's happening here, but Miss Durfee comes to talk to Emily, and she does kind of test her. She starts talking to her and saying, Hey, have you heard about the rumors of polygamy? Have you heard anything about that yet? And, uh, of course, we have Emily saying in her mind, Oh, gosh, I could tell her a thing or two. But she doesn't reveal the secret that she promised Joseph that she would keep. And yet she doesn't know at the time that Elizabeth is a wife. She would later learn that Mrs. Durfee was a friend to plurality and knew all about it. On their walk home from Mrs. Durfee's house, Emily finally musters enough courage to tell her sister Eliza about Joseph's offer. Eliza felt very bad indeed for a short time, but it served to prepare for her to receive the principles that were revealed soon after. Unrelentless, Joseph would approach Emily again on February 28, 1843, right before her 19th birthday. Emily said, He taught me this principle of plural marriage, but we called it celestial marriage, and he told me that this principle had been revealed to him, but it was not generally known. 
A week later, Mrs. Durfee came to me and said that Joseph would like an opportunity to talk with me. I was to meet with him in the, in the evening at Heber C. Kimball's. Not wanting to incur any sort of suspicion, Emily would wear the same dress she had been working in that day, so no one would notice that anything was amiss. She was very cloak and dagger and very secretive. When I got there, nobody was at home but the Kimball children, William and Helen Kimball. I did not wait long before Brother Kimball and Joseph came in. Emily would also recall that Heber and Joseph sent the Kimball children to a neighbor's home and pretended to send Emily away with the children as well. I started for home as fast as I could so as to get beyond being called back, for I still dreaded the interview. Soon I heard Brother Kimball call, Emily, Emily! Rather low, but loud enough for me to hear. I thought at first I would not go back and took no notice of his calling, but he kept calling and was about to overtake me, so I stopped and went back with him. So you can tell that Emily is really hesitant. She doesn't want to do this. She's caught in sort of this tangled uh, web of lies and uh, secrecy and sort of subterfuge, and she... She said she almost ran away. She, If it wasn't for Heber overtaking her, she wouldn't have gone back. Or she almost didn't go back. But they they convinced her to come back to the Kimball home, and Joseph spoke to Emily, saying, I cannot tell all Joseph said, but he said that the Lord had commanded him to enter into plural marriage and given me to him. And although I had got badly frightened, he knew I would yet have him. Well, I was married there and then. Joseph went home his way and I going my way alone. A strange way of getting married, wasn't it? Emily would later say in her Temple Law affidavit years later that she, quote, roomed with Joseph the night following her marriage to him and said that she had, quote, carnal intercourse with him. Emily also recorded that she had slept with Joseph on other occasions. And Joseph's property caretaker in Macedonia, Benjamin Johnson, remembers a couple traveling there. He would say, quote, The prophet came and occupied the same room and bed with the daughter of the late Bishop Partridge. End quote. Four days after his marriage to Emily, Joseph married Emily's sister, Eliza. Emily later claimed that Neither of us knew about the other at the time. Everything was just so secret. So you can imagine how fast everything is moving now for these girls at this point. They're living in this house. They've been there for a year. They've been taking care of the kids. And now all of a sudden, they are wives of Joseph Smith, uh, obviously rooming with him at certain times. Joseph has other wives. He's rooming with them. He's involving them in the secret society. Around the same time of these secret marriages, Joseph introduced select men to the endowment ceremony. And we talk about this in the Navu episode. He taught that it was necessary for exaltation. Women now would also be receiving the endowment. This is an important part development in the ceremony. And Joseph wanted his wife, Emma, to be the, quote, elect lady, the first woman to receive the endowment. As the first woman, she would then be able to disseminate it to other women. The endowment requires a wife to be obedient to her husband. And because Emma was resisting plural marriage... Joseph would not let her participate in the endowment. This is a problem because now this risks her own exaltation and it risks the exaltation and delays the ceremonial endowments for other women. And you know that Emma is struggling with this practice at this time. She now, Joseph has been preparing her for a long time. He sent his friends to prepare her. She's tormented with it. She denies it. She thinks it's horrible. She knows about other women, the gold watches and things like that. She knows that things are going on and she's still tormented by it. Doesn't want to believe that it's happening. Joseph is trying to get her to accept this. And so carrying this burden, Emma agrees to let Joseph marry additional wives because she wants to be the first person to have her endowment and she doesn't want to risk the exaltation of other women. She will let Joseph marry other wives provided that she gets to choose them. Now, unaware of the marriage to 
Joseph months earlier with Emily and Eliza Partridge, who are living in her home taking care of her kids, Emma decides to select these two live-in helpers. They're sisters. They're in the home. She can keep a good eye on them and watch them. They're really young. So she doesn't know that Joseph has married them earlier, so she chooses them. And here's what Emily has to say about it. I do not know why she gave us to him unless she thought we were where she could watch us better. To save the family trouble, Brother Joseph thought it would be best to have another ceremony performed. Emma had her feelings, and so we thought that there was no, no use in saying anything about it so long as she had chosen us herself. Accordingly, we were sealed to Brother Joseph a second time in Emma's presence. So they go through with this second ceremony for Emma. You know, Emma's struggling with it, but she agrees to it with a lot of hesitation. And she's there, and they go through this whole performance of it. And it's very difficult for her. The wives are a little bit resentful that they have to do this again, but they're trying to accommodate Emma and her feelings. And within a week of this marriage, Emma is rewarded by receiving her endowment. Emily would write of this time. The first intimation I had from Brother Joseph that there was a pure and holy order of plural marriage was in the spring of 1842, but I was not married until 1843. I was married to him on the 11th of May, 1843, by Elder James Adams. Emma was present. She gave her free and full consent. She had always, up to this time, been very kind to me and my sister Eliza, who was also married to the Prophet Joseph Smith, with Emma's consent. But ever after, she was our enemy. She used every means in her power to injure us in the eyes of her husband. And before strangers, and in consequences of her abuse, we are obliged to leave the city to gratify her. But things were overruled otherwise, and we remained in Nauvoo. My sister Eliza found a home with the family of Brother Joseph Coolidge, and I went to live with Sister Sylvia Lyons. She was a good woman, and one of the Lord's chosen few. Emma, about this time, gave her husband two other wives, Maria and Sarah Lawrence. I think this is one of the most sad stories that I've read about Joseph Smith's relationship with Emma. She certainly had her challenges. She had lost children. She had suffered at the hands of her of the mob. She had married Joseph without the consent of her parents. But here we see her really tortured. You know, as Emily said, things were great. They got along in the home. And the minute that they got married, things turned south. She said... But ever after, she was our enemy. Emma becomes our instant enemy the moment that they get married. And it's it's just so heartbreaking to see Emma really grappling and struggling with this, with this practice. She's tortured by it. She's tortured by the process. And things really start to ramp up and go south from here. And they're never going to be the same after. As you can see... Um, these girls get kicked out of the house, like some of the other women that have lived with Joseph. You think that they would, Emma would know better than to bring other women into the home at this point, considering the track record. But uh, these women get kicked out, and Emily says she lives with Sister Sylvia Lyons, and she calls her one of the Lord's chosen few. I take that to mean uh, chosen few, meaning one of the few chosen women to be married to Joseph Smith, because, of course, Sylvia Sessions Lyons was also married to Joseph Smith, so she was one of the chosen few. According to Emily, the minute Emma knew of the marriages, the trouble would start. From that very hour, Emma was our bitter enemy. We remained in the family several months after this, but things went from bad to worse. Personal secretary William Clayton writes that Emma discovered Joseph locked in a room with Emily's sister Eliza. He would write, quote, President stated to me that he had had a little trouble with Sister E. End quote. The following story of Emma discovering the two could be the catalyst for the following story. And this is a really hard story because I think it, it also illustrates how tormented Emma was. Emily remembered being confronted by Emma shortly after this incident of Joseph being locked in the room with Eliza. She sent for us one day to come to her room. 
Joseph was present, looking like a martyr. Emma said some very hard things. She would rather her blood would run than be polluted in this manner. Joseph came to us and shook hands with us, and the understanding was that all was ended between us. I, for one, meant to keep this promise I was forced to make. We looked upon the covenants we had made as sacred. After our interview was over, we went downstairs. Joseph soon came into the room where I was, said, How do you feel, Emily? My heart still being hard. I answered him rather short than I expected. I felt as anyone would under the circumstance. He said, You know my hands are tied. And he looked as if he would sink into the earth. I knew he spoke truly and my heart was melted. All my hard feeling was gone in a moment. I had no tie to speak for he was gone. Emma was on his track and came in as he went out. She said, Emily, what did Joseph say to you? I answered, he asked me how I felt. She said, you might as well tell me, for I am determined that a stop shall be put to these things, and I want you to tell me what he says to you. I replied to Emma, I shall not tell you. He can say what he pleases to me, and I shall not report it to you. There has been mischief enough made by doing that. I am as sick of these things as you can be, I said in a tone, and she knew that I meant it. I do not remember speaking, speaking to Joseph, but once after I left the mansion house, and that was just before he served for Carthage. Speaking of Emma, Emily would say, I think Emma always regretted having any hand in getting us into such trying circumstances. But she need not have blamed herself for that, for it would have been the same with or without her consent. I have never repented the act that made me a plural wife of Joseph Smith and bound me to him for time and all eternity. So you can see the conflict that Emma is feeling now at this point. Not only is she wildly jealous and struggling with this concept, but she is also feels responsible to put an end to this. She is worried that Joseph is um, acting in a way that's really improper, and she's trying to ask Emily, not just confront her out of jealousy, but she's also saying, I have to put a stop to this. Will you please tell me? And Emily, she says her heart is heart, her heart is hardened, and she doesn't you know, feel like she has to answer to Emma. She sees herself in equal status almost with Emma at this point. She is his wife too. She doesn't have to tell him, tell Emma what's, what goes on between them. And that's a really hard, hard place to be in. Joseph soon arranges for Emily and Eliza to move out in the Smith home. And, you know, it's said that Emma wanted them completely out of the city, but they refused. And Emily ends up staying with sister wife, Sylvia Lyon. Emily wrote. After the prophet's death, I again entered into plural marriage. I was married to president Brigham Young according to the law of proxy, and received my blessings in the, in the temple at Nauvoo. I had one son born in Nauvoo. His name was Edward Partridge Young Smith. The saints were again driven from their homes, and I crossed the Mississippi River about the middle of February 1846, and was again without home or shelter, an outcast and a wanderer in the dreary wilderness, without even the necessities of life. My babe was about three months old. I was not quite 22 and had been driven with the saints of God by mobs four times and all for my religion. I wish I could say that this was the worst of her trials with polygamy, but unfortunately the story gets a lot, lot worse, so brace yourself. She marries Brigham like a lot of the wives of Joseph Smith. This was common. Brigham Brigham thinks he's doing a great service to these wives. Emily would be the eighth wife of Brigham Young. By mid-February, Brigham had married 40 other women. So he is accruing many wives in a very short period of time. And Nauvoo polygamy, as you will see, is going to be very different than Utah period polygamy because of the way it's practiced, because of the way that it's now being practiced more openly. It's still being, it's still secretive at this time, but 
as they go along the trail and they get further and further west, it stops becoming this big secret. I don't know if Emily knew what she was in for, but it would be a lot different than being married to Joseph. Life with Brigham was really difficult, and Emily has extensive, fantastic journals that chronicle her life lost in the crowd of Brigham's other wives. Her diaries reveal that she had agonized over asking the wealthy Brigham Young for any money when she needed to pay bills or improve her home. Brigham would father all seven of her children, but was nearly absent in Emily's life, and as you will see, resents being the father of her children in some ways. Emily would live with the Huntington family and spent those those early, really rough periods of heading west, fighting off loneliness, sickness, depression, and wolves. While spending a year in winter quarters, Patty Sessions records that E. Beeman, E. Partridge, and Zina Jacobs came, laid their hands upon my head, and blessed me, and so did E. R. Snow, thank the Lord. So she records that Eliza Partridge, or Emily Partridge, comes and blesses her. So we know that Emily was part of that group that would go around healing and blessing these women. As Emily headed to Utah, she arrived right before the birth of her first daughter, Emily Augusta, and she was sent to live with Brigham's brother, Lorenzo, who moved her into a small and dingy cabin. So you can imagine just having a baby, being pregnant along the trail, how miserable that would have been, having the baby, and then having to live in this dirty, dirty cabin, very crowded with other people. Shortly after her third child, Carolyn, was born, all three of the children became really sick, and on September 26th, her little Eddie died. Emily did not write about the death, which is unusual for her, but other accounts say she was completely devastated. She left to live with her mother in Salt Lake City for a time, fending off heavy depression that affected her children and would go on to affect her life, and little Caroline, who was now one and a half, was still sick and was, quote, looked like a skeleton. Emily wrote, I think I came nearest to giving up at that time than I ever did before or since. It seemed to me that another straw would break the camel's back, but the straw was not forthcoming. And although she was usually timid and cautious when she interacted with Brigham, we see a sort of renewed strength with a letter that she wrote to him. Dear friend, I hope you will excuse the liberty I take in addressing you thus. I did not wish to write, could I have had an opportunity of saying to you what I had wanted. Since the death of my child, a change has come over my feelings. I feel more lonely and more unrecounseled to my lot than ever. And as I am not essential to your comfort or your convenience, I desire you will give me some other good man who has less care. I realize you have a great many cares and perplexities, a large family all having their wants. What we know of Emily from her own writing is that she had very strong opinions, but she couldn't often assert them, like when she was scared to get married to Joseph and Heber and felt a little bit pressured to do that. So it's really courageous of her to write Brigham and say, listen, my feelings have changed after the the death of my child. I think that I don't want to be married to you anymore. I feel very lonely. I want you to give me to a good man. Please give me someone else. We don't know what Brigham's response is to this quite bold letter. And I would like to point out that she is not the only wife to do this. Lots of women were asking for divorces. Polygamists, divorces in Utah were extremely high. In fact, people say that uh, Utah, the Utah Territory had way more divorces than the rest of society. They were a lot more lenient in their divorces. We don't know what, how Brigham responded, but we do know that Emily, shortly after writing this letter, becomes pregnant with another one of Brigham's children. And not only that, but she moves to the, quote, White House east of Eagle Gate on South Temple, which was then known as Brigham Street. And um, right after that, she moved into the Lion House in 1856. The Lion House was where Brigham kept some of his favorite wives. Now, his really favorite wives, he ended up building huge, huge homes for, as you'll see with the home called Amelia's Palace, but we'll talk about that later. But the Lion House was where Eliza R. Snow would stay and other prominent women 
Emily's other children were born there, but one passed away at seven months old. In 1869, Emily was sent to live in Brigham's Forest Farmhouse. And whenever I hear that, the Forest Farmhouse, my blood runs a little cold. Uh, if you go to This is a Place Monument Park in Utah, you'll see this this home. It's this beautiful little pink house. It's like a f- little fairy house. It's so cute. And this is a forest farmhouse. And uh, when we do Sunstone Butter Runs, we have a butter run where we have a 5K where you have to shake you have to run with a thing of cream and turn it into butter by the end of the race. It's a lot of fun. We do it at the, at the dairy house. This is the actual house that we do it at. And, uh, our last 5k, I got to be at this home all by myself at like five in the morning for like a few hours before everyone arrived. And it was so haunting to me to think about because this forest farmhouse was where the dairy cows supplied milk and butter for the lion house. Moving there, especially from the Lion House, was seen as a demotion. This place was where... Historians joke this is a place where Brigham sent the wives he didn't like. If you got sent to the Forest Farmhouse, you were in for a really tough life. Your job was to make butter and cream for the wives and the men that lived in the Lion House. You were kind of... um, Maybe this is a harsh interpretation, but... You were kind of the servants of the other wives. Emily recorded how she loathed being there. And Anna Eliza Young from the 19th Wife book fame wrote that any wife that ended up there became, quote, invalids before they left the place, broken down by overwork, end quote. Emily was charged with making cheese to feed 25 to 30 men. And she resented the work so much that it caused great turmoil between her and Brigham. Brigham is recorded to have said, quote, When I take another man's wife and children to support, I think the least they could do would be to try and help a little. End quote. Todd Compton interprets this statement as Brigham believing that children were not that his children were not really his because Emily was sealed to Joseph in the eternities and Brigham for mortality only. So Brigham resents that he is married to her, that he's taken on, you know, Joseph's wife. He feels like she's depressed a lot. She's a, she's not doing any good work. He sends her to the dairy house. She complains about it. Oh, she's so ungrateful. He's trying to take care of this other man's wife. He doesn't even look at the kids that he's fathering as his. He looks at the, as he looks at the children as Joseph's. In 1872, we know that Emily returned to the city and began to write essays and record endlessly in her journal. She would not be sub- supported financially by Brigham Young, and her health had been ruined by working in the dairy house. When she tried to appeal for him for money, she was told to go through, quote, the president's men. She had to schedule appointments if she wanted to meet her own husband. And I think this is one of the hardest things about polygamy back then, especially if you were married to a prominent man. So you were afforded some benefits. You were given a home, a nice home. You didn't have to want for food like some of the wives in like Southern Utah would. But here... Emily is living in a bureaucracy, not a marriage. She has to make appointments to meet with her husband. Emily would write in her journal quite a bit, and she would write, Today I am 50 years old. Can it be possible to look back upon my past life? It seems like a troubled dream. There has been but few, if any, pleasant reminiscence for memory to dwell upon. My children. They are my comfort. Emily would continue to record being sick and neglected by Brigham and his men. She would fight off long periods of depression and illness. And you can read Todd Compton's work to get more details on her journal entries regarding the neglect of Brigham. They're fascinating. Todd has done some excellent, excellent work about uh, Emily's diaries. After Brigham died, Emily had even more trouble providing for herself as her own health was failing. She took comfort in her children and writing and publishing several articles in the Women's Exponent. She would die at the age of 76 on December 9th while living with her daughter, Emily Augusta. The Desert News provided her epitaph, quote, Mrs. Young has over 40 grandchildren, several great-grandchildren, and a numerous posterity, and all in the faith of the gospel in which she believed and for which she has made great and noble sacrifices. 
Mrs. Young was very retiring, modest, and a reticent woman, but firm in her convictions as the everlasting hills. She was greatly beloved by her own family and also loved and revered by the family of her late husband and the women of the Latter-day Saints who had the pleasure of her acquaintance. End quote. So that's the story of Emily Partridge. We're going to talk about her sister next week. I know this was a long episode, but I think it's really important that you hear a lot of the the words in her own journal, in her own writing, to let her own vo- voice shine through. Because I think it's regretful that her life was, in my opinion, limited by this practice. She felt so lonely, so depressed, and really struggled alone. And, and that's a sad story. So thank you for listening to this podcast again. And thank you so much to Stephanie Newton again for the excellent reading. I have to brag about Stephanie. She did this on one try, just a cold read. She did excellent. So it was great. And I would encourage you to support this podcast if you like what you're hearing. The research takes a lot of time. So uh, go ahead and donate on the donate button if you can give a few dollars. And thank you for listening to the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. <laughs>